This is Soundstage founder Doug Schneider. You're listening to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast, your semi-regular deep dive into news, facts, opinions, and anecdotes about everything that really matters in the world of high-performance audio. Hosts Brent Butterworth and Dennis Berger have more than five decades worth of audio product testing experience and a few hours of podcasting experience as well. Now, here's Brent and Dennis. Hi, I'm Brent Butterworth, editor of Soundstage Solo. And I'm Dennis Berger, editor of Soundstage Access. And this is the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast, a twice a month or every other week or something examination of the most important things that are going on in the world of consumer audio. Absolutely. What are we talking about this week, Brent? Well, we're going to start off with an article that you found in the new, I guess new, Mm -hmm. The new old Cream Magazine, that's C-R-E-E-M, which was a very, very leading rock magazine um, back in the 70s, maybe the 80s, I don't know. Yeah. And um, which I used to read, but they have, someone has resurrected it and they have a really cool article here called Sacred Bones Resurrects the Objectively Greatest Audio Format, the eight track <laughs> and they go it into happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah that had to happen and they go into a, a little bit of an examination of it and it's, they talk about actual new eight track tapes that are being released unbelievably um so <laughs> assuming we actually finish that discussion what are we going to do next <laughs> yeah. well uh you had uh cued me into the fact that audio express uh did their uh august issue on acoustics so I thought we'd dig into that and talk about room acoustics a bit because we touched on it to a degree, but we haven't really dug into it. And I think this issue gives us a chance to, you know, say some things that you and I both have to say about acoustics. Um, yeah, you know, I think you, I mean, you summed up the entire you know, consumer audio publication status, you know, about acoustics is that, you know, they've touched on it a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's very important. Um no. It's very so, important. It's more important than this, but not as important as that. And there's, <laughs> we're, we're, well, we're going to dig into, we're we'll going to dig there. into some stuff. All right. Yeah. So what are we're going to wrap up with, we're going to wrap up with an article by, uh, this guy, Dennis Berger. Yeah, it's me from, uh, <laughs> soundstage access. That's called what do our future a AI overlords think about hi-fi mm -hmm. and, you did, you are, you have become like the master of this AI generated illustration thing, which we've been using a lot for soundstage. Mm -hmm. And you started, you know, kind of exploring what the AI thinks about our hobby. And, you know, the AI, uh, if you say to the AI, you know, give me a drawing of a truck driver, it'll give you a drawing of what it thinks truck drivers look like. Mm -hmm. And so you did the same sort of exploration with audiophiles mm -hmm. well an audiophile product <laughs> largely prompted by you products, yeah. so yeah so yeah that's going to be a fun conversation um especially okay. since it was you know i wrote it a month ago and the world has moved on since then so much has changed so it's going to be interesting to talk really? about how rapidly all of this is evolving i mean it is really oh god it is it's just it's, oh, it's i didn't know that Oh yeah, way more advanced now, but we'll dig into that. But let's talk about this article from Cream first. Cool. Okay. So, yeah. So what so you're the one that turned me on to this article. You want to describe it a little bit? Yeah, I you know, Cream is back. We should say that. It's mm -hmm. pretty exciting to be. We've got an, a, a magazine actually dedicated to rock and roll again. Um which we haven't had one of those in a long time, but There's um, rock and roll still? Yeah, there's apparently rock and roll still. Um, but yeah, this, this article came up sacred bones, uh, sacred bones, by the way, is a, a label, mm -hmm. uh, sacred bones resurrects the objectively greatest audio format, the eight. And where, where is sacred bones based? Uh, Brooklyn, isn't it? I think. Of course. Of course. Yeah. North It would Brooklyn? have to be Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but the, the funny thing is I'm reading this article and it's just like, I, I think I was probably 90% of the way through the article before I really decided whether or not I thought it was satire, <laughs> which is to me the, just the great thing about cream. You know, there's, there's, um, you know, I, it, it's, it's, there's this spirit of rebelliousness that I dig, but, but anyway, I just want to read this, these couple of lines that really grabbed me that made me love this article, whether it was serious or not. Um, so it starts off, just drink it in. 
you ever hear music this good? Listen to how good that sounds. <laughs> and, then, and they're talking about listening to eight track. And then somebody else says, yeah, the haunting quality of the warble. This is the best way to consume music. I mean, what do you think? What other ways are there? You can listen to your telephone, but that's weird. Records are really flat. You have to flip them over. I just, it goes on and on like this. Yeah. And I just thought it was hilarious, but um, it brought back uh, to mind for me, some work that you've done for other publications about the revival of cassettes, but also an old Hope Theater magazine article, which which in the 90s, you did a roundup of A-track players, which, you know, yeah. I mean, <laughs> here we all, are. all of them bought at flea markets. One of them bought off a homeless guy in New York. Uh, I think one of them <laughs> dug out of the trash because you couldn't you couldn't buy new ones even back then, much less yeah. now. Yeah. So where are you going to buy them now? Yeah. Um, interestingly, though, we do have a place to buy brand new A-track tapes just not a track players. So maybe, maybe they should have thought of that first. Cause so aren't they releasing new a tracks now? This label? Yes. By Towns Van Zandt. So there's, there's already two of them available on their website. And that's actually what made me realize that like there was something serious about this article. It's, it's like you read it and you're like, is that, are these, is this a joke? And then you go and Google sacred bones records and know they have a sacred eights tab and you could buy towns, Van Zant eight tracks. There are two right now. I think there are like five more on the way. And How much are they? 30 bucks. Oh, that's a little steep. <laughs> yeah. That's the biggest problem with it. The expense. Well, although I guess if you, I guess if you calculate for, cause I think I used to pay about, you know, seven or eight bucks for an eight track, you like, for, you know, for a new eight track, something like mm -hmm. that in the seventies. And so if you figure based on inflation, that's probably a, a fair price. I'm kind of curious though, that like, where are people going to buy an eight track player to play these things on? I looked on audio gone, man, and I found a lot of people selling eight track tapes, but no eight track players. I found reel to reel players. I found a good number of cassette players, but no eight track players. So that's, okay. that's an interesting question. Yeah. But I looked on eBay and mm -hmm. on eBay, there were a lot of players and my experience has been buying used tape machines of any sort, uh, especially a track, which, which was always a mechanically very, very dicey format. You know, the tapes wouldn't last forever. The tapes would, you know, the, the little thing that holds them together in the middle that makes that, that makes the electrical contact. So it does the ka-chunk sound. Mm -hmm. um, that thing comes loose and you can't really splice it too easily because the tape gets kind of wrapped upon itself and they're kind of nearly impossible to repair. Mm -hmm. And when we did that eight track shootout in home theater magazine, that was 1997. Um, most of those players didn't work or they halfway worked. Mm -hmm. And I think finding one that works now would be really difficult. You have to buy a few, and even if the the owner tests it and says it works fine, a lot of these things, I've I've had old cassette decks that I've tried to do things with, and you know they're working fine for an hour and then they die. Yeah, I think probably your best bet would be to find like to 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 maybe scour the bulletin board or something like that and find somebody selling a nineteen seventy seven Ford F one fifty and just gamble that maybe it's got a, maybe it's got an eight track player hooked to the underside of the dashboard with L brackets. That's so there you go. That's how you're going to find your new eight track player. Yeah. Although the, the, the truck, you could get the truck running <laughs> pretty much guaranteed. You could get that truck running. Yeah. But the eight track player, very questionable. I know that, uh, Gordon Salk who runs, uh, innovative audio up in Vancouver, I know, you know, he's talked to me about eight tracks and he's got a couple players in his store usually because um, they do, you know, vintage audio. And I know that, I know if I ask Gordon, like, hey, I need an eight track player that works, he would find me one and his technicians could get one working. But that's a rare thing. And then you can't buy new tapes at all, to my knowledge. I don't know where they're getting the tapes to record these, there's a, these there's new a, releases. There's a great paragraph here. And I don't, again, you just, I don't know if it's satire or not, but let me read this. Um, Bratton says that anyone who's making new eight tracks now, like Sacred Eight, is actually just dubbing over old ones, or they've somehow gotten a hold on the stash of blanks. And there's a quote. <laughs> there's another thing for you, he says. Eight tracks, 
very sustainable because they're not making any new parts for them. So it's all recycled. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was great. Yeah. These are yeah. not going to end up in a, in a landfill. Well, they might <laughs> someday, but you know, whereas if you buy, if you go buy a Bluetooth speaker now, then it's going to be in a landfill one day. Yeah. There's yeah. no question about it because the battery will die and you can't really replace the batteries in most cases. Nope. So you'll just throw it away and it'll yeah. end up in a landfill. Whereas the 8-track player can, in theory, be fixed. Mm-hmm. And the players, you know, the, the actual tapes, you know, they're could, almost impossible to repair, though. Could you bake them? <laughs> yeah, you could. You could. But the problem is that the tapes, for those who don't know, 8-track is like this, it's a system where the the tape winds up, it's, it's just one reel inside mm-hmm. there, and it winds upon itself. And so the, the, the tape that you're hearing that goes across the heads is coming out of the middle of the reel. Mm-hmm. And so it comes out of the middle of the reel, it goes, and then it winds itself back onto the outsider, the outer part of the reel. Mm-hmm. And so... Unlike, say, a cassette tape where you can pull the thing open and you can go splice any part of the tape that you want to with 8-track, it's, boy, I mean, I guess you could do it, but you need to have a lot of time on your hands and a lot of patience and a lot of fine motor skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm I'm going to place a bet here. I'm going to bet that there will not be an 8-track revival. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny, though. It's It's... So often we we take the flaws of a medium and and become nostalgic about those flaws. I mean, yeah. to me, you're, oh God, I don't know why I'm telling this story because this is going to give you ammunition to make fun of me for years. But like, there's something I have plenty that, of that already. I know that's true, but there's just something to me. I I expect a kerchunk in the middle of Freebird. You know, <laughs> a lot of, it's, Wait. to this day, I hear Freebird and I expect to hear kajunk in the middle Are of it. Are you kidding me? Did they break, did they break they, Freebird? They broke Freebird in, in the middle. Yes. <laughs> On the I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, that's yep. what you get for listening to Leonard Skinner. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I remember, well, just as, just as bad is I, there was some Kiss record I had where they would break the, uh, the track in the middle and i'm pretty sure that rush all the world's a stage which is a favorite eight track of mine back in mm-hmm. the day i'm um, given how long rush's songs are i'm gonna guess there were probably a would be a break there too yeah but you know i it took me years to get over that too yeah. but i you know when i finally switched from eight track to cassette back in oh 82 or something like that 83 i finally did it mm-hmm. um I would still listen to songs and expect that ka-chunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's a, good, it's a good format to, that, that we're done with. But, you know, what, what should happen here is one of the more hipster uh, audio companies, like let's say Zoo Audio, mm-hmm. should probably, the ZU Audio, should probably, they're always, they do super, super cool demos. And it's always like with crazy stuff and, and really, you know, uh, obscure records and things and um they should probably <laughs> use a track for their demos <laughs> yeah that'd be hilarious and they probably do it just for yeah. fun you, know, you need w- a good supply of a tracks because the you know you you need a couple of players you need probably three players and a bunch of tapes because <laughs> how long they're gonna last <laughs> yeah I have to say, though, you've, you've hit on something for me that's just probably the coolest part about all of this is that if not for this article, I don't think I ever would have heard of Sacred Bones Records. So this is great publicity. And I'm looking through yeah. their catalog and it's like, man, they've got some really wicked cool artists and they're doing some really cool releases. And would I oh, ever good. buy one of their eight tracks? Hell no. But I'm glad I know about Sacred Bones now. So, you know, mission accomplished, I guess. They're doing some good really PR. cool stuff with, yeah, with like, you know, John Carpenter score soundtracks and all kinds wow. of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's just some really, really, really cool go releases. Look. Yeah. Yeah. So check them out. So. Cool. Okay. You want to move on to our next topic? I actually want to take a break first. You want to do that? Let's, let's take a break and then we'll be back in a minute and move on to acoustics. Yeah.
and welcome back to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. I'm Dennis Berger. And I'm Brent Butterworth. And for the second segment, we're going to be talking about the August issue of Audio Express Magazine. Um, Brent, you brought this to my attention that, uh, mm-hmm. I believe this is an annual thing where every August, the, the, the every August issue, they talk about acoustics. Yeah. Um, but, but, uh, but there hasn't been an acoustics issue since we started this podcast. So it's a good opportunity yeah. to talk about the subject and, uh, opine a bit and talk about some cool new developments, uh, we saw in this magazine, but, uh, yeah, why don't, why don't you start this off? Because you're the one okay. that actually brought this this issue to the uh, to the to the discussion. So why did you want to talk about acoustics? So I, I should point out Audio Express. It's Audio Express mm-hmm. um, is a magazine. It's an not that well known audio magazine, but it's well known to engineers and the more technical people in uh, any aspect of the audio industry: consumer, professional, you know, industrial, uh, whatever. And so they have a lot of sort of technical deep dives on subjects, and they also kind of keep you abreast of a lot of things going on in the audio world that you may not be aware of. So they do every um, August, I guess, they do an issue on acoustics, and they feature a lot of new acoustical products. And they also had a great article in here by Dr. Richard Honeycutt, Mm -hmm. which goes through the history of acoustics going all the way back to... uh, uh, Ancient Greece, you know, to, to ancient Greece. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's about as far back as you could go. So, but more more back into like about a hundred years ago, when a lot of the real, uh, the original experimentation started to to happen, where when you know people were starting to have big meeting spaces and trying to figure out how to get the space designed to where people could hear music or speak or or a, a speech or whatever clearly, and so. He, it's it's really fascinating to me how this is, you know, we think of, we get so wrapped up in consumer stuff, but the market for acoustics is primarily for commercial and industrial spaces. Mm-hmm. So for offices, restaurants, things like that. Um, and Museums. That's a huge museums, part of it. Yeah. yeah my, my friend Steve Haas, I mean, I think that's a lot of what he does is just acoustical treatments for museums. And Yeah. So, so. I, wanted to, I wanted to mention there were two things in here that really stood out to me. There's, there's a company called Shion, S-H-I-O-N, that's making adaptable acoustic treatment panels that are, that are active, that actually have a transducer in there. So the panel is a transducer. And they are getting so it it actually tracks your position. The system tracks your position in the room and adjusts the room acoustics to be optimal for where you are. Mm-hmm. And it does all this automatically, and it has in, up to eleven dB of active noise cancellation. So I'm looking at this going like, God, this has got to be really expensive. However, this could really work. Yeah. You know, this is this is really interesting, and I have to note that it's being distributed by uh, Vanna Limited, which is a high-end audio consumer products distribution company in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Here, and so I'm th- I'm like, I'm thinking, God, this would be great for high-end audio because, well, it it's a big investment, but it'll work. You know, it'll do things, which you know, not everything you buy in high-end audio actually does something. Yeah, and this would produce audible effects, and it would be this is like. This is potentially a sort of next level thing in high end audio mm-hmm. that that could really deliver a, a, a real result at colossal expense and complexity. Yeah, but yeah. still, still, it's something. And there was another company called Flex Acoustics, which is making now these panels are just for commercial installations. They're, I think, if I remember correctly, they are about two and a half meters by two-thirds of a meter, so they're mm-hmm. big. Um, but they have slots in there, and they're motorized, so the motors can control the the slots in there, and they open the slots to make them into absorbers, and they close the slots to make them into diffusers. Yeah. And I just thought that was really fascinating that people are starting to do this. Now, however, though, this made me, you know, it's just sort of like when, when people talk about a car, you see that car everywhere for the next week, right? It just becomes, you become aware of it. So people started talking about acoustics and I started going, I started seeing more mentions of acoustics on Facebook and in, in audio publications. And I wanted to kind of dig into that and how do you, I mean, how would you sum up the, (laughs) 
the statements, the research, the position, et cetera, of, you know, audio publications on the subject of room acoustics. Are you talking about consumer? Yeah, uh, consumer, public? you know. Well, I mean, well, the, I would say probably the most oft used phrase in that respect is, you know, the room is the most important part of your audio system. I mean, I've seen a lot of advice in this mm -hmm. arena, a lot of it conflicting, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of people treat it like, like if you don't have a treated room, then you might as well just be listening to an old boom box. Um, I, you know, I've seen other people, our friend, Steve Guttenberg, um, you know, he's got these really beautiful, um, acoustic treatments on his wall and you can see them in every video he does. And mm -hmm. I think his attitude towards them are. Well, they sure do look pretty, don't they? And I have to agree with them. They're gorgeous. <laughs> but yeah. I'm not, I, I've, um, you know, you made a point to me uh, recently that, that, that just to me sums up the whole thing. I haven't seen a lot of discussion about actual studies that demonstrate what user preference is in terms of acoustically treated rooms. So, yeah, um, which is ultimately what matters. Mm hmm. And if you look at that Dr. Richard Honeycutt article in Audio Express, you know, he talks about how, you know, they found, you know, 100 years ago or whatever, that you need a, you know, if speech is the priority, then you need basically a flat, you know, reverberation time. In other words, the time it takes for the, for the sound to decay by 60 decibels is the reverberation time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's typically measured in, you know, it's a second or two seconds or half a second or whatever. Um so he says that, you know, basically, you know, this is you know, science a hundred years ago or whatever told us that if the, uh, you know, a flat acoustical or a flat reverberation time, reverberation time that's similar at every frequency is better for speech. Whereas with music, you want more reverberation time in the low frequencies to give it more of a rich kind of sound. Mm -hmm. But we don't see that, you know, when audio publications, you know, consumer audio publications review acoustics products. You know, the acoustics manufacturer sends them some products and they put them up on the walls and it sounds probably better than what they had, <laughs> which might have been nothing. Yeah. Um, or, you know, and the, the, the writer's just like, oh, these are great. Mm -hmm. And there's very little analysis. There's no measurements. Um, I think I've seen one or two. I think I've seen two measurements of acoustical products, one of which was done by me. And one of which was done by Cal Rubinson at Stereophile um, of, you know, products that they actually tested. Um, there's no analysis. It's just like it's different, therefore better. And it may indeed be better. Mm -hmm. But there's – I'm taking audio publications to task here for basically in, repeatedly insisting that acoustics are so important but absolutely refusing to take the issue seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And there's just, like you said, there's no, there's no data. And, you know, I, 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 and even everyone has their opinions and you, you get even into acoustics pros and they have their opinions about what is right and what is wrong. I did a tour one time with a company called Cat MBX, which makes super, super high-end custom speakers for home theaters and music rooms and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I went to, I probably saw, oh, 12 or 15 or it was less than 20, but more than 12. I can't remember. Uh, rooms that were done by this company, I think every single one of them had been, they had had an acoustician working on it. And the speakers, you know, performed really well. The systems were all really high-end speakers, really well designed. They all had good electronics, you know, hooked up to them. But the room sounded different. And some of the, uh, actually Steve Haas, the guy you just mentioned had done a couple of them and his rooms all sounded great, but there were a couple, some of the rooms sounded really dead, almost more like a recording studio control room environment. And I, I really think there needs to be more, I was going to say, I was going to say, I think there needs to be more codification of what works and what doesn't, except of course, as usual in audio, <laughs> Dr. Floyd Toole answered this question a decade ago for yep. us, and everyone ignored him. Um, Nearly 15 years ago. It was like yeah. 2008. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Dr. Floyd Toole is you know, arguably the most famous audio scientist alive, and he's got a, re a book called Sound Reproduction, The Acoustics and Psychoacoustics of Loudspeakers and Rooms. And... He actually deals with this. And I was shocked. I, when I first read this, I was shocked at how sort of simple his approach was. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, he talks about how, you know, you need to have absorb people a lot of times think the sidewalls are the most important thing, but he says they're not. The most important thing is to have absorption on the on the wall behind your speakers. Mm-hmm. And it has to be at least four inches thick because with acoustics, the the thicker the product, the lower the frequency it'll work at. Mm-hmm. And if you have if you buy those like two inch thick um, wedge foam panels that you find at a lot of uh, pro audio stores, mm-hmm. those have like they they are not very effective in the range of the human voice, but they roll off all the trebles. They absorb all the treble, and they leave the mid range, and it makes voices sound really shouty. Mm. Um, it, they're terrible. I can't believe they still sell these products, but of course they're skinny and they're cheap, and people can easily tack them up. Whereas to, to get treatments that really work, they have to be big. Yeah. And so, but he basically prescribes, you know, get four inch panels and put a bunch of them on your, your back wall, you know, four inch thick panels behind your speakers. And you can do on sidewalls, you can absorb it if it's home theater, if it's music, don't absorb it. Or if it's both, probably don't absorb it. Just mm-hmm. put a diffuser there and then put right. diffusers in the back with a little bit of absorption in the back. And I actually, I called Dr. Tool because I was writing about his article and his first response was, Wait, you read that? <laughs> Second, <Yeah>. um, <laughs> I think he's very disappointed that he does awesome work and it is so often conveniently ignored by people who have their own agenda. Yeah. But anyway, so you know, he came over to my house and he because I I lived really near where he lived at the time, and uh, he came over. He looked at my room. He's like. Okay, because I had the, like these fancy uh, uh, architectural sort of panels that had all the di- different angles and things. And they mm-hmm. were, I want to say they were five inches thick, four inches thick. And he said, those are excellent tweeter diffusers. You need to move them out to where they're eight inches. The, the, front, of, the front of them is eight inches away from the wall. Then it'll, it'll diffuse mid-range. Oh, wow. I was like, oh, okay. So I, I actually ended up building a whole new set of diffusers from concrete... Um, you know, those concrete forming tubes that you can buy at Home Depot. Yeah. But to get, the only thing is the ones they sell at Home Depot are not really big enough. You really need, I can't remember that. I think I got a 16 inch wide one from a, a you know, professional supply place mm-hmm. and cut it in half. And I, I, you know, made several of those big diffusers. They were easy to make and they worked great. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just, I took a bunch of wedge, four inch thick wedge foam and I crammed it all together and made it to where it was like this five inch thick panel. And my room sounded fantastic. Yeah. Um, and it, it took him (laughs) not five minutes to analyze my room with just looking at it. And that's, that's, that's another thing that I think we should talk about is that (sighs) we keep talking about how important room acoustics are, Mm -hmm. but we don't talk about how not important they are does that make sense yeah i mean i i guess it does my my thing and this is i you know i i know i sound like a broken record when i say this because i'm constantly saying this but for me it's all about distractions it for me it's about is there anything that is taking my attention away from my music and you know, in large part, I think you have to ask the question, is there something about this room that is distracting you? If there is, fix it. If there's not, not every room needs to be super treated. And I, I also think we underlook the importance of things like bookshelves. You know, my wife and I could run a library out of our house. We have bookshelves in every room and mm-hmm. uh, covering most walls. And to be honest with you, it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of just about only the only acoustical treatment we really need now granted um in in our media room things would probably be better if we had some bass traps but yeah use room correction for that up yeah, to the sort of the crossover it. frequency of the room and then i don't i don't use room correction above that but but yeah i think we overlook how how uh how good bookshelves are as acoustical treatments mm-hmm. um and 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 yeah so so don't necessarily take people's word when they say you have to have an acoustically treated room. Yes. Room acoustics are super, super important, but that doesn't mean you have to do something about it. It, Depending on your decorations, your, your interior design, it could be that your room is perfectly fine. And if you're listening to it and you're not hearing, you know, smearing or what have you, if there's something that's, if there's not something that's drawing your attention away from your music, then well, is it absolutely necessary that you need to do something about it? I, I have to say, I think the speaker is, is, is 
probably a lot more important in most cases. I think um, so too. I, there, look, there are bad rooms. I remember I, when I worked for Dolby, we went and did a bunch of demos in Shanghai and uh, at the Shanghai International Audio Video Show or whatever. And we were in this giant uh, like conference room and that held probably, I would just take a wild guess and say 70 people. And so we did these demos and they had wood paneling all over the wall. Mm, and yeah. so I'm looking at this wood paneling going, and I'm asking my my uh, Chinese colleagues, I'm like, um, can we go buy some you know acoustic treatment foam? And they're looking at me like, what are you talking about? And I start like drawing <laughs> pictures of what it looks like. And they're like, no, <laughs> we don't have, you know, look, they're like, Brent, this is China. You can't just go buy anything you want. And, and then I started wow. like, I started like, like being like, well, can we just get like raw foam? And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, and I start pushing down on a chair to show mm -hmm. like the chair cushion yeah. like that. And they're just like, maybe and we went and scoured shanghai to try to find we just couldn't find anything wow and so the next year we the next year we we shipped a whole bunch of acoustic treatment products to the room mm -hmm. and you know i think we had like two by two uh you know foam panels you know i think they were like those pyramid type panels and we uh found some cardboard and we sort of uh, tack glued a bunch of the things onto the cardboard panels and put them up on the sides of the room. Mm -hmm. And we did our big fancy Dolby demo with DVD audio and ProLogic 2 and stuff like that. And after the demo, people would would come up. They wouldn't come up and ask us questions about the sound. They'd go up and poke their fingers at the foam panels. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so maybe for people who've never really experienced this before, talk about what you were hearing in that room in Shanghai before you put the foam up. Like what? It was you'd he, you would hear your voice echoing off of the walls. You'd hear your voice slapping back off of the walls, and you get flutter echo. And flutter echo is when you have things that are you. It gets happens with voices, but uh, it's even more so with high frequencies. If you start, I I remember I had an apartment in New York that had wood floors and a and a you know normal ceiling, and when I'd sit there eating my breakfast with my spoon in the bowl, and the spoon would click against the bowl you'd hear the, it bounce back and forth between the ceiling and the floor. Mm -hmm. it go, and it drove me nuts. And so you want to get rid of things like that, and yeah. which we did. And that room ended up sounding tolerable the second year. The first year, it was I was just trying to find, I, we were putting cardboard, I think I made some cardboard columns or something mm -hmm. that we decorated with posters to try to just break up some of the, the reflections, but it was, it was rough. So yeah, flutter echo is a really bad thing. And if you and there, look, there are a lot of uh, uh, residential environments now that have no or very few absorptive surfaces. You know, maybe they have no rug, or maybe they have a really thin, like you know, Persian rug that doesn't absorb a lot of sound, and maybe they have very little on the walls, and maybe they have leather furniture which isn't that absorptive. And mm -hmm. in rooms like that, you really need to look at what some of these companies are doing with artwork where, you know, where they have the, you know, you get the artwork printed and it's on an acoustical panel. Yeah. And that will be a giant improvement over, uh, you know, no, nothing at all. Yeah. And it, you, you may not be able to get the room optimal, but just putting up a few things like that, the room will just sound so much better. I mean, didn't you ever go into... Um, like school rooms and some school rooms just sounded really bad and, and yeah. echoey and, and you just walk in the room and you just be like, Oh God, this room sounds really bad. Yeah. Um, and I've heard recordings done in rooms like that. Um, I have a great, uh, Vena recording, which is an Indian, a South Indian instrument. Uh, and the guy who's like the best Vena player, uh, a lot of his recordings are terrible. And some of them were, uh, there's one I have that was, they're just like destroyed it, man. They're so good. But they're recording in like just some crappy conference room or something. That's just like nothing but, but horrible room tone. Yeah. And so anyway, um, one of I the just, things I, that I, I don't think we talk about enough though, is like when you say acoustics, they're really sort of too different domains one is you know the sound interacting with the surfaces but the other yeah. is sound leaving your space and entering your space i you know when i started with soundstage i i basically sort of redid my my two channel setup in in my office my home office mm -hmm. where i write 
And one of the things, one of the biggest acoustic problems that I have now, granted, I've got bookshelves here and there and I've got, you know, good absorption behind. But one of the biggest problems that I'm having that I need to rectify is I'm a lot closer to my window now. And so I have road noise coming in. And one of my biggest acoustical treatments that I'm planning for is replacing this window with like a triple pane window. That's probably going to be the biggest acoustics upgrade I've ever done. But people don't don't often talk about that. So that's important. That's a lot more of a distraction for me than, you know, there's, I, I probably need to, to move my diffuser where my first reflection on the right side of the room is like back a foot and a half or something like that, but it doesn't really distract me. So is that a big concern? But this window, big concern. So that's my number one acoustics project that I've got to work on. Replace this damn window. That's a really, really, really good point that I think it's overlooked a lot. So I would like to conclude by saying, I think this is important for sound quality, but I'm disappointed in certainly on the consumer side of the industry, just how, how, the publications don't treat it seriously. They don't dig deep into it. They don't talk about the stuff that Dr. Tool talk, talks about in his book where he's saying that, you know, hey, look, this thing has to be X thick to actually work at these frequencies. Otherwise, you know, that's just the laws of physics. Mm-hmm. And they people just ignore that and just go and some guy makes a cool looking panel and they see it at a show and go, oh, I could review those. And they review them and it's like, oh, that sounds great. Yeah. And that's that's our that's the status of, you know, consumer audio publications reviewing acoustics products at this point. And I just really think we could do better. Yeah. Yeah. You want to take a break? I do. All right. Let's take a break and uh, we'll be back in just a minute. Cool. I am Brent Butterworth. And I am Dennis Berger. And we are going to wrap up this segment with a really, what we hope will be a fascinating discussion. It's certainly a fascinating topic. And it's about an article that Dennis wrote for soundstageaccess.com titled, What Do Our Future AI Overlords Think About Hi-Fi? So Dennis, would you like to, I still am, am struggling to understand all of this stuff. I know that I, I will introduce before you get do a deep dive here. I will say Dennis has been exploring, you know, the 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 subject of uh, AI generated images. Like you tell an an AI, you know, artificial intelligence system, hey, I want an image of, uh, you know, a fish riding a bicycle down uh, a mountain, <laughs> and mm-hmm. it comes up with that, right? Yeah. So. What have you been, and you, you, we have actually run some of these uh, illustrations on various soundstage sites. So yeah. dig us a little deeper into this and tell us what you have done recently. Well, you know, the, it, it, I talk a little bit about this at the beginning of the article, but it's, it's becoming harder and harder to, to illustrate, um, anything that's not a review, right? <laughs> Sometimes you're, you're mm-hmm. just, you're grasping for images and man, copyright trolls are just ruining everything. I've, yeah. I, um, are, I've, I've heard that, uh, our friends over at copper magazine are having problems with copyright trolls with images. Um, my former employer is having problems. And so I've been looking, um, 
just I'm looking at, at these image generation neural networks as a way to create imagery for a story that is original, that is, you know, I own the copyright or Soundstage owns the copyright or what have you. And mm-hmm. so two months ago, I started digging into one that was I had to run on a Google Colab machine and it's all like hand coding. And I come up I had come up with some pretty rudimentary images and they, they were fine. They worked, whatever. This field is advancing so quickly that a month's time is just like, you know, I I said in my article, it was like in the course of a month, it was like going from Atari 2600 to PlayStation 5. But looking back now, no, it was like that was was like Atari 2600 to Nintendo. And then the next month was like Nintendo to PlayStation 5. Of course, by next month, I'll have to revise that again. But all of this is developing so quickly. But I've. So when I wrote this article at the beginning of August, I think it was, I had mm-hmm. just gotten my hands on Midjourney, which is was last month the 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 neural network that everybody was talking about in terms of image generation. And, and maybe we want to explain how these things work a little bit. Do you think that's interesting sure. at all? I so, think that would be good. So a lot of it comes from uh it actually started as just the opposite. It, it started as a way of taking an image and generating a textual description of that image to help uh with uh, accessibility on the web, you know. So so mm-hmm. many people upload images they don't put any sort of metadata or in them or anything like that. So these neural networks were, were trained to go and look at an image and go, Oh, that is a picture of a, a fish riding a bicycle down a mountain, mm-hmm. whatever. Right. And, um, eventually the, the, the script got flipped to where you could take these, the, the language, give them language and they would give you an image in return. And they work by a process called diffusion, which is sort of hard to wrap your brain around, but, Here's a very bad description of it. Imagine you're in the shower and you know you've got the like the little drops of water on that and you know occasionally you'll look at a you know a series of drops of water and you'd be like that kind of looks like a face, right? Mm-hmm. These things start with noise and you could think of those as the equivalent of the drops of water and they add noise and and filter noise and, until basically they start to make an image congeal out of that noise. They're shaping noise for lack of a better way of putting it to sort of match the images that or match the words that you're giving it. So Mm -hmm. when you say you want, you know, a bike riding a bicycle down a mountain, it's looking for patterns in that noise that it starts to recognize as being evocative of those words. And it's shaping that noise until eventually after, you know, billions and billions and billions, billions of iterations of that noise you you come up with an image that looks like something so yeah when i started sharing this with you you <laughs> i was i was sort of sharing it with you thinking you would yeah hey i've got this story like help me do an image with this but you sort of prompted me to hey let's poke this thing and see what it thinks about hi-fi and that ended up being a cool idea for an article so th- this article never would have happened without you but um ah. long and short of it is these things are all based on patterns. It's pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. It's pattern synthesis. And, and what I realized disappointingly for me is <sighs> these neural networks think our hobby is kind of boring, man. <laughs> you know, I could go and go, I give me images of bicycles and it's giving me, you know, penny farthings it's giving me recumbents and these are all different iterations but there's so much variety in so many other fields of interest and our field of interest there's no variety here it's just all black boxes with black knobs and and the speakers are all just rectilinear things with drivers shoved in them and the point that i'm making this article is that the headline is is sort of um, facetious because these, these neural networks don't really actually think anything, but Mm -hmm. the pattern that I'm recognizing in this pattern recognition data is that our hobby is sort of visually stale, (laughs) you know, I'm not seeing anything in any of these generations of speakers that I would think anybody would go, damn, I want that in my house. Right. I'm not seeing any of these stereo receivers that it's generating that look like 
anything different from a stereo receiver that could have existed in the 70s. So this is all like, I mean, this is all like box speakers from the 1970s and stereo yeah. receivers from the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Why does this think we're this thing think we're stuck in the 1970s? Because there's a lot of better speakers, you know, better looking speakers out there now than that. So, you know, here's my hypothesis on that. Midjourney in particular was trained on something like 60 terabytes worth of images. And mm-hmm. most of that is, you know, uh, sort of public domain stuff. The training data gets updated occasionally. And when you look at different neural networks, they're trained with different data, but I still think it has to be, they're looking for patterns. They're looking for commonalities. This thing is not taking and copying, pasting, elements of different images and putting them together it's it's rendering its idea of what the object is that you're describing mm-hmm. and i think for large part maybe you you never i've never seen any electrostatic speakers in any of the renderings i've done when i just asked for speakers i think maybe it's just because it doesn't necessarily it's either it doesn't understand that those are speakers or it's that they are just statistically noise, right? So they don't in any way help it sort of understand the concept of what a speaker is. But for me, the question I have is, is this indicative of, of the sort of mass consciousness perception of this? I mean, really, when you think about it, these things are reliant on people going and tagging an image with words that it can then interpret, right? So is this just indicative of the fact that normal people sort of think this about these speakers? It's just like I you go to a person so. on a street and go, what's a speaker? And they're just going to describe this because that's, that's sort of how all of this works is, is tying images to words. So, yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, of course this thing, you know, this thing knows that something looks like a speaker because people have told it that's what a speaker looks like. Mm-hmm. And I guess if you got a hundred people into a room and said, draw a picture of a speaker, they'd probably draw something that looks kind of like an old pioneer speaker from 1975. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe I would too. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. But the interesting thing for me though, is you ask it to draw a bicycle and there's just so much variety, you know, I mean, yeah. it's just, it's, it's That's weird. You, you ask it to draw a bicycle and one time it may look like an image from like 1887 and the next image it spits out may look like it's from, you know, the future. So why are we not seeing that in terms of audio? And I think it is a perception thing. So. I mean, look, one of the things I'm trying to do with soundstage access is not preach to the choir. I'm trying to get out on the street corner and evangelize. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I have to think about where, where, where's the inertia, where are the roadblocks to reaching new people and bring them into this hobby? And look, I don't think most people want products that look like these products that the AI is spitting out sitting in their living room. They don't make products that look like that anymore. Hardly. Yeah. Yeah. People make, you know, people go buy Sonos now. Well, that's true. That's and, true. Or, or something similar to that, you know, speakers that are small and are kind of nicely designed and don't look obtrusive in a room and don't take up a colossal amount of space. That's what people buy now. Mm-hmm. And yet somehow the perception of what a speaker is has not changed to reflect that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm look, like I said, I don't know if any of this is conclusive, but it's, I'm looking into, you know, a system that, that organizes and synthesizes patterns and I'm seeing patterns that are to me a little disappointing. So, yeah, well, maybe that'll change as more people get involved with this and, or maybe not, I don't really know, but I would say go look at Dennis's article on soundstageaccess.com and you can see some of these images and judge for yourself. Yeah. What's funny is I'm looking through the, you know, I turned this in in early August. So I guess, mm-hmm. you know, a little over a month ago and I'm looking at it and going, God, these images look archaic. Like we have advanced so far since then. Yeah. And I talked about all of the different, you know, neural networks that are doing the image generation and sort of mentioned the big ones. And like at the time, a month ago, stable diffusion wasn't even on my radar. And now stable diffusion is the neural network that everybody's talking about. Wow. So it's, it's crazy how fast all of this is advancing. It might be fun to rerun this experiment like a month from now and see if the results are any different, maybe update this article. I don't know, but 
Um, yeah, you'll see like a, a, a young woman with a lot of tattoos listening to a Sonos system, probably. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Anyway, uh, anything else you want to say about this one, man? No, I just, I, I found it fascinating and hilarious. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, hey, I also, I've done some, uh, I've done some images from, for some of your stories. I did, uh, I did, uh, the, uh, I did a hog being washed in the style, great. in the style of Miyazaki to represent hogwash when you were yeah. writing about, it. and like how, you know, how would we have illustrated that, that article otherwise? Um, I don't I, know. We just would have put a picture of something that we got from some manufacturer probably. Right. Yeah. And, and, and run the risk of being sued for it. That's the danger. Man. Oh, that's true. Cause that article was a little bit on the negative side. <laughs> yeah. So I don't bit. know. I think this tool is going to, is going to change. Yeah. Not drastically, but in to a degree change the way journalism works. I mean, look, I thought for the longest time that it was going to be little, little, you know, small publications like ours using this tool yeah. to, but I noticed last month when, uh, the Atlantic did a story about Alex Jones, they illustrated it with mid journey, the same wow. AI that I'm using here. And it's like, man, if even the Atlantic is doing it now and illustrators are in trouble, <laughs> but well, they are. Yeah. No. So you want to wrap this thing up? Yeah, Move man. on? Yeah. You want to do some credits? Yeah, let's do some credits. All right. This well, yeah, we should... A, what? Go what? ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm going to... I was going to jump in with some credits. We'll do it. I want to make jump. sure that the, the people that I want recognized are recognized and appreciated <laughs> for their contributions. <laughs> and by the people, I mean you and me. Yeah. Um, so this is a production of Butter Burger productions yeah yeah <laughs> and it is the uh the the overall entity here is soundstage networks which is you can find at soundstage.com it's a a network of nine microsites dealing with different aspects of consumer audio mm -hmm. and Who did the music this episode uh, I guess the music will be by me and probably with some contributions from my friends Ron Seiger and Dan Gonda cool and uh, what else do we have to talk about? I don't think we got anything else, man. I think we could. I think we could wrap this up. And uh, that's all go the have... credits we have. We don't have an executive producer. We don't have a. Well, I guess me, or you, okay. or us. Butterburger, man. Butterburger. That covers it all. Yeah. It's that kind of covers it all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I guess we'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Cool. Okay. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Stellar episode.